I hope you have your copy of God's Word. We're going to be in John chapter 4 this morning, looking at verses 1 to 26. We're going to split this chapter into, into two parts. And so today is verses 1 to 26. And I hope that you'll follow along with me as we read now from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus, beginning in verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and let's ask God to bless us now as we consider his word. Let's pray. Father, we ask for the illumination of the Holy Spirit now, that by your grace and through the work of the Spirit, you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word, that we might believe in Jesus Christ, that we might obey Jesus Christ, that we might use our lives to serve 
the Lord Jesus Christ. God, do your good work today, we ask. We pray, Father, that you would help us to understand the scriptures here. And that in understanding them, we would be conformed to the image of Christ. Father, please keep me from error. Please give your church discernment. Please help us, Father, to hold fast to the truth in the midst of very evil and wicked days. We ask this, Father, with great confidence, knowing that you hear us, because our Lord is seated at your right hand, and in his name we pray. Amen. One of the blessings of the Gospel of John is that the Apostle tells us directly and plainly why he writes this book. Near the end of the book, in chapter 20, the Apostle John says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There's no uncertainty in that statement, right? The purpose of John's gospel is faith in Jesus Christ leading to life. That purpose is like a road map whenever you're reading John's gospel. What should you focus on in every passage of this book? The person and work of Jesus Christ. What application should we make as his followers when we're reading through the book? To strengthen and deepen our faith in Jesus Christ. Where do we find life as Jesus' disciples? In this wonderful good news that the word became flesh, died, and is not dead anymore, but lives forever. That purpose statement from the Apostle John is like a road map for reading this gospel. There's no guesswork. We don't have to scratch our heads and wonder, what is this passage about? John tells us. It's to believe and to believe in Christ, to have life in His name. The Gospel of John, with all of its various parts, is about this one thing. Faith in Jesus Christ leading to life. Friends, I begin with that purpose today because it helps us get our bearings in chapter 4. This passage is well known. Jesus, traveling to Galilee, passes through Samaria. And in the heat of the day... He meets a Samaritan woman at a local well. Noon is not the time that you would typically go to draw water. So right away when we're reading this chapter, we know that there is more to this woman's story. And that's precisely where the Apostle John's purpose statement helps us. There are numerous interpretations of this passage that are quite honestly speculative. There's also a tendency in this passage to overlook Jesus in our drive to understand the mindset of the Samaritan woman. What was she thinking? Why was she there? What's her state of mind like? Those are all interesting questions, but they're not the main question. The main question is, what does this text teach us about Jesus? Whatever we conclude about the Samaritan woman, whatever we decide about this encounter between her and Jesus, the ultimate point of John chapter 4 is and must be about Jesus Christ who he is and what he's come to do. So without apology, our focus this morning is going to be on precisely that, the good news of Christ, who he is and what he has come to do. We're going to talk about the gospel. That's not to say that John 4 fails to teach us anything about ourselves, not at all. 
the Samaritan woman does give us incredible insight into the human condition, into human nature. But even then, Jesus remains central. As the Samaritan woman finds out in this passage, we actually only understand ourselves in so much as we understand Jesus. All true knowledge of self begins with knowledge of God. So in terms of an outline, we're just going to reflect simply on the gospel. This passage gives us three distinct reflections on the good news of Jesus Christ. Each one comes from Jesus' journey into Samaria, where he meets this wayward woman at the well, who by the end of the chapter becomes an unlikely witness to this very same gospel. Let me give you the, the reflections in advance to aid you in listening. Our first reflection has to do with mission. The second focuses on grace. And the third has to do with mercy. Mission, grace, and mercy. Three reflections on the gospel from John chapter 4. Let's consider each one in more detail. We're going to begin in verses 1 to 6 with the priority of Christ's mission. The priority of Christ's mission. On the one hand, these opening verses supply the background to the entire chapter. You can get a sense for that as you're reading these first six verses. There's all sorts of place names and travel notes. It's clearly background. Jesus is on the move from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north. But on the other hand, these opening verses are much more than background. Even as John supplies the setting, these verses also remind us of the priority that defines Jesus' life. What does Jesus live to do? What has he come to do? Carry out the mission given to him by his Father. So notice verse 1. The Pharisees appear increasingly opposed to Jesus and for a specific reason. Jesus is making more disciples than John the Baptist. You may remember back in chapter 1 that the Jewish religious establishment wasn't too keen on John the Baptist. They saw him as a threat. And now that suspicion appears to have shifted to Jesus because Jesus' ministry is growing more than John's. Jesus is making more disciples than John the Baptist. What does Jesus' ministry look like at this point? Verse 2 gives us some insight. People are coming to hear Jesus teach, and those who respond to him are being baptized by Jesus' disciples. This is not Christian baptism, per se, because the cross and resurrection are still in the future. But baptism in verse 2 would be a sign of commitment, perhaps even an appeal to God for cleansing from sin. We don't know all of the details at this point, but the broad outline is clear. Jesus' ministry involves preaching the word of God, and people respond to that preaching in order to be committed to God, which is pictured in baptism. There's this tangible response to follow Jesus. Of course, the Jewish religious leaders don't like this, so Jesus withdraws from the area. Verse 3, he withdraws to Galilee. We might think that this means Jesus simply wants to avoid controversy in Jerusalem. Maybe Jesus is running from opposition. But nothing could be further from the truth, friends. In fact, in verse 4, 
John indicates that mission, mission remains Jesus' priority even as he moves to Galilee. Notice the language of verse 4. It's a short verse, but it's important. It says, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. That's the language of necessity. He had to do this. That may simply mean that the shortest route from Judea to Galilee was through Samaria, which is true, and therefore Jesus had to take the shortest route because maybe he was trying to be efficient in his time. It may mean that he just took the shortest route. But that same verb in verse 4 is used all throughout John's gospel to to describe divine necessity in Jesus' ministry. John 10, 16 is a good example. Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must, same verb, I must bring them in. It was God's will for Jesus to pursue the lost, including the lost outside of Israel. There was a divine necessity that drove Jesus in his mission. It's the same verb. Now read that divine necessity in verse 4. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Why? Because it was necessary for his mission. Think about what happens in this chapter, friends. What does Jesus do in Samaria? He calls a lost sheep. The woman at the well. In fact, he calls many lost sheep. Because by the end of chapter 4, many Samaritans believe in Jesus. So Jesus had to pass through Samaria, for this is why he has come, to seek and to save the lost. He's not running from the Pharisees. Jesus ran from no one and nothing. He goes to Samaria because mission, mission is his priority. This entire scene, this entire encounter is purposeful. Purposeful according to the will of God. Friends, anytime the Bible gives us insight into Jesus' priorities, we ought to pay attention. Because we want Jesus' priorities to be our priorities. What was Jesus about? Proclaiming the word of God for the purpose of making disciples. That was his mission. That's what he gave his time to. He called people to orient their lives to God through his word. And that call to discipleship required a visible response You had to turn your life in a new direction and follow Jesus. Discipleship then was Jesus' priority. Mission was his priority. Is that our priority? It's not a throwaway question. It's not rhetorical. Is that our priority? Are we prioritizing the mission that Jesus prioritized? Discipleship simply defined is following Jesus by trusting His Word, obeying His commands, so that your life looks more like Jesus' life over time. Following Jesus by obeying His Word, submitting to His commands, so that your life looks more like Jesus' life over time. That's discipleship. Disciple-making is using your life to do the same thing for other people. Using your life to help others See and obey and follow Jesus. Discipleship was Jesus' priority. Is it ours? Is it getting the best of our time, the best of our efforts, the best of our resources for the purpose of making disciples? That's the first reflection on the gospel from this text. The second reflection takes us into the heart of the passage. 
verses 7 to 15, reflection number 2, the surprise of Christ's grace. We see the priority of his mission. Now we see the surprise of Christ's grace. We need some context here. Jews and Samaritans did not like each other, to put it mildly. They're like UK and L fans. I'll let you decide which one is which. Because I don't like either of them. I'll go now. Jews and Samaritans didn't like each other. There was ethnic tension between the two as Jews viewed Samaritans as idolatrous descendants of those wicked northern tribes. So there was ethnic tension. There was religious tension. Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, and they had their own versions of those also. Samaritans also thought that you should only worship on Mount Gerizim, which is in Samaria, as opposed to on Mount Zion, which is in Jerusalem. So there's ethnic tension, there's bad blood, there's religious tension. Each of them thinks the other is heretical. All of that to say, and some of those things still exist today. You can still find some Samaritans in the Holy Land. Same tensions. All of that to say, when Jesus goes to Samaria, things very well could get heated. There could be a noticeable uptick in hostility. But it quickly becomes clear that hostility is not why Jesus has come. He did not go to Samaria to settle scores. Rather, Jesus went to Samaria to show grace. Grace is the reason for his travel. On a basic level, this is clear from the fact that Jesus goes to Samaria at all. Most Jews would travel around Samaria to get to the north. Jesus goes through there. So the fact that he goes at all indicates something of his heart. But it's the encounter with the woman at the well that provides the clearest backdrop for Jesus' grace. Their conversation highlights, highlights grace in a couple of ways. Notice them with me. To begin with, there's grace that initiates. Look again at verse 7. Simple observation. Who starts the conversation? Jesus does. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Remember, it's about noon, which is hot in the desert. This is not the normal time that you would come uh, to draw water. So the fact that the woman is drawing the water at noon leads us to safely assume that she would rather be left alone. She would rather people not talk to her. But Jesus initiates. He initiates with her. Give me a drink, he says. That's surprising. As the woman's response in verse 9 indicates, she's actually dismissive towards Jesus. Look at verse 9. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? That's not a very warm response. She doesn't want to talk anymore. For all she knows, this Jewish man has nothing good to say to her because Jews never really had anything good to say to Samarians. Plus, you add in her backstory that we're going to learn about in a minute, and this encounter is surprising. This is not the kind of person you would expect the Messiah, the King of Israel, to go out of his way to engage with. And yet, that's precisely what Jesus does. He moves towards her, humanly speaking, when there would be no reason for him to do so. Jesus initiates. That's grace. Along with that initiation, we should also notice some grace that satisfies. There's grace that satisfies here. 
The woman is dismissive to Jesus, but he persists. He picks up that image of water, and he engages her in a conversation about her deepest need of heart. It starts in verse 10. Look what Jesus says. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Friends, what should get your attention here is the fact that Jesus puts himself in the spotlight. He's, focused on him, he's focusing the woman on himself. He calls the woman to put aside the hostility and to see him. If she knew who he was, she would ask him for living water. That image is a doorway into Jesus' purpose for the whole conversation. Samaria is a dry, arid place, as you know, so living or fresh water is necessary for life. Stagnant water, you can't drink it. You, you can't drink it. Your livestock can't drink it. So stagnant water doesn't lead to life. Living water is necessary for you to survive. You need this living water, and the Samaritan woman would understand that. She understands that Jesus is talking here in terms of need. But what she doesn't understand is that this is not the kind of satisfaction that Jesus has in mind. When he says living water, he means something much greater than a physical need. He has, he has in mind something that actually has roots in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 17, for example, God calls himself the fountain of living water. And in Ezekiel 36, God says that with living water, with clean water, He will cleanse His people. So when Jesus says that He would give living water, He's revealing who He is. He's God in the flesh. He's revealing Himself to this woman. And that in turn helps the Samaritan woman understand herself. What is her deepest need? Not physical water. To quench physical thirst... Her deepest need is a spiritual thirst, so to speak, that has sapped the life out of her very soul. But the woman doesn't understand that yet. In verse 11, she doubts that Jesus can give her water since he doesn't even have anything to draw from the well. And in verse 12, she asks him what is honestly a derisive question. Look again at verse 12. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So the woman brings in this note of hostility. She cites her Samaritan heritage. Jacob, the patriarch of Israel, gave this well to Joseph and his descendants. And she says, our heritage isn't second class to yours. You claim to be descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, so are we. And we got the well from Jacob, just like you got Mount Zion from David. We're not second class to you. She's prepared to argue, you see. She's prepared to have it out. Are you greater than Jacob, she asks. She snaps at him, actually. Are you greater than Jacob? Now, what's the irony of her question? Jesus is greater than Jacob. That's the whole point. She speaks better than she knows. But despite her dismissive question, Jesus will not let up. He keeps pressing her to see that her greatest need is not physical thirst. What he offers her is something more than physical water. And that becomes very clear, at least to us, in verses 13 and 14. Listen again to what Jesus says. 
Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Physical water, no matter how cool or how clear, cannot quench thirst forever. Everyone who drinks from the well, even Jacob's well, everyone who drinks from the well is going to be thirsty again. But the living water that Jesus gives is different. This living water produces eternal life. Remember, eternal life in John's gospel is shorthand for salvation. To have eternal life is to be saved. Eternal life is not merely unending existence with God. It's communion with God. Life with God. Through Christ in the Spirit for all eternity. John 17, 10. Jesus says, this is eternal life. That, you, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is the living water that Jesus is Presenting to this woman in the gospel. Living water is salvation. Worked by the Spirit. Received by faith. And once more, Jesus is drawing on the Old Testament here. He's recalling the Old Testament. In the Old Testament prophets, salvation was often described in these terms of water and thirst. The prophet Isaiah is a good example. The Spirit would be poured out on Dry ground, Isaiah 44. God's people would draw from the well of salvation, Isaiah 12. And through salvation, God's people would never thirst again, Isaiah 49. This is what the Samaritan woman does not yet understand. Her physical thirst is not her greatest need. Her greatest need is what only God can give her, salvation. Before we move on to the final part of the, of the conversation between the two, we ought to just linger here for a moment and ask, what does this part of their conversation, what does this exchange teach us about the gospel? What does it teach us about the gospel? There's a lot that we could say, but I want to focus on the surprising nature of grace. We spoke about it earlier, and we, I, I want to come back here because it's important for us to understand grace. Humanly speaking, this is not the person that you would expect the king of Israel to engage with. And if we're being honest, friends, none of us would put this woman on Jesus' itinerary if we were his travel secretary. Nobody's putting the woman at the well on his agenda. This is not the person you would expect the king of Israel to engage with. She's a Samaritan, first of all, and she has a past, second of all. Not to be harsh, but she's an outcast living among outcasts from the Jewish perspective. And of course, we love the story because we know how it ends. But if you were there in Jesus' day, this is not the person that you would expect him to pursue. Frankly, you would be scandalized if you saw him in this conversation. This is not the person that you would expect. And therein lies the takeaway, the value of, of this passage for understanding the gospel. This entire exchange helps us see grace for what it is. God's grace is always surprising. The gospel, by definition, 
is the good news that God's grace cannot be corralled by human merit and it cannot be controlled by human wisdom. If grace were to work in ways that we expect, then it would cease to be grace and it would be something else. If grace were to work according to our expectations, then it would lose some of its glory. It wouldn't be amazing grace. It'd be like, huh, ho-hum stuff. Grace must surprise us on some level because grace always comes to those who are undeserving. It always comes to people that you would not expect God to waste his time on. So we're surprised that Jesus spends time with this particular woman at this particular well. But honestly, we should be wonderfully surprised that Jesus pursued any of us. That's the connection. The Samaritan woman helps us see more clearly what it means that God is gracious. I'm, I'm convinced that our typical evangelical definition of grace is far too tame. Far too tame. It always surprises. It always catches us off guard because by definition, that's what it is. This conversation at a no-place well with a no-place woman is a small picture of what happens in the gospel every day. By grace, God in Jesus Christ moves towards the people that you would least likely expect him to pursue. That's grace. And it's wonderful. That takes us right into reflection number three. This time from verses 16 to 26. Here we're going to think about the persistence of Christ's mercy. Priority of mission, surprise of grace, and now the persistence of Christ's mercy. We noted just a moment ago that the woman doesn't understand. Verse 15, she asks for living water. But that's because she didn't want to come to this well anymore. <laughs> so she asks for living water. And what happens next, what happens next re requires some clear, careful thinking. So let's follow the conversation between the two. And let's try to do so clearly and carefully. It begins with a leading statement from Jesus. Verse 16. He says, go, call your husband, and come here. The woman replies, very matter-of-factly, verse 17, I have no husband. Jesus keeps pressing her, you're right. Verse 17, you don't have a husband, you've had five. And the one you live with now is not your husband. What you have said is true. So the woman's backstory is checkered, to say the least. She lives an immoral life. And very likely, everyone knew that she lived an immoral life. So, back to verse 16. Jesus' statement, Go call your husband. Here's the key, in my estimation, to getting this scene right. When Jesus says, Go call your husband, that seems like a random statement, doesn't it? They're talking about living water, and he says, Go call your husband. It's almost out of the blue. So, here's the question. Why does Jesus go there? What's his motive? What's his motive? Is it to accuse the woman or to show her mercy? Well, think about the transition from verse 15 to verse 16. Think about that transition. Verse 15, the woman asks for living water. And verse 16, Jesus says, call your husband. 
Those two things are absolutely connected, even if the woman doesn't know it. The woman wants living water, but she's thinking in what terms? Physical terms. She's thinking about a drink of water. She wants living water, verse 15. So what does Jesus do? He takes her to the one place where she will see, unarguably, that her greatest need is not physical, but spiritual. He takes her to her moral failed relationships. So that she will see she's got a deeper thirst than something physical. By calling her husband, by telling her to call her husband, Jesus is defining for her her thirst. He's showing her her own heart. She needs forgiveness, not a drink of water. She needs cleansing more than a break from coming to this well. In other words, in other words, here's the key. Jesus is not condemning her. He's not even accusing her. He's showing mercy to her. Jesus exposes her sin so that she will see God's mercy in holding out to her living water. He's exposing her so that she will be broken and brought to the point of repentance and forgiveness. He's not condemning. He's not accusing. He's not outing her. He's being merciful, friends. He's being merciful. So mark it down. If you're, only, if you're a Christian today, if you're repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ, this is, this is the one application that I want you to take away from today. If you're only going to write one thing down, this is what you should write down. Write it down. Here it is. Anytime God exposes your sin, it is an act of mercy, not condemnation. Anytime God brings you out into the light so that you see your need and you can't hide and you know that only God can satisfy. Anytime God does that, even if it's painful, even if it's embarrassing, even if it brings heartache, anytime God draws you out into the light, that's mercy. Mercy, mercy, mercy. He's never condemning his children. He's showing them mercy. Now, I'm rejoicing in how amazing this picture is so far because I'm, I'm much more like the Samaritan woman than I would want to admit. I like to hide. And so I'm glad that God is merciful to me, a sinner. The mercy of Christ is incredibly tender, even to those who are stuck in their sin. And yet, and yet the picture goes deeper. Christ's mercy does not stop. It's persistent. Verse 19, look at what happens next. Based on Jesus' insight into her life, the woman sees an opportunity to settle that old debate. Verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. That's a rather obvious statement. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Question. Is the woman evading Jesus, or is she genuinely seeking an answer to a real question? Is she evading him, or does she really want to know about worship? I don't think we can answer that definitively. She calls Jesus a prophet, so she recognizes on some level that he has insight. He just told her everything about her, so that's not all that you know, insightful that she recognizes that he's a prophet. So perhaps, perhaps she is evading him, or perhaps she really does want an answer to this thorny question on which mountain should God's people worship. We don't really know what the woman intends from her question. But what matters is, is what Jesus intends, not what the woman intends. 
And what Jesus intends is to persist with mercy, this time through revelation. Jesus answers the question by pointing the woman to himself. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Mountains are not the point, Jesus says. Mountains are not the point. Now, God did ordain that worship happen in the temple in Jerusalem under the Old Covenant. That was the prescription of God's word. So the, the promise of salvation came to the nation of Israel, and the fulfillment of that promise will come through the nation of Israel. Jesus is an Israelite. So that's, the, that's what Jesus is saying in verse 22 when he says that salvation is from the Jews. He's saying that the fulfillment of God's plan does come through Israel, not Samaria. But the bigger issue, the bigger issue is not the place of worship, it's the condition of the worshiper. Notice verse 23. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship. Mountains don't matter, Jesus says. Spirit and truth matter. Why is that the case? Because that's the nature of God. Verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So the nature of God defines true worship. Mountains don't matter. Worship in spirit and truth, for God is spirit. These are the kind of worshipers that God is seeking. Those who worship Him in spirit and truth. And we're going to come back to God seeking those kind of worshipers, Lord willing, next Sunday. We're going to come back to the seeking of God. But this morning, I want to think for just a minute about that phrase, in spirit and truth. What does that mean? What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? In John's gospel, the spirit is connected with whom? With Jesus. John 15, 26. When the helper comes, whom I will send you in my father's name. So in John, Jesus gives the spirit from the father. And in John's gospel, truth is connected with whom? With Jesus. John 14, 16, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So in John, spirit is connected with Jesus, truth connected with Jesus. Put all those pieces together. What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? It means you worship God in and through Jesus Christ. Mountains don't matter. This man does, Jesus. You worship him in and through Jesus Christ, who gives the Spirit and is himself the truth. So to worship in spirit and truth means that you enter God's presence, not because you are worshiping in the right location, but because you are worshiping the right person, Jesus. It means you don't view worship as this transactional thing where you bring your sacrifices so that you can pacify some cosmic deity so that he doesn't then strike you with a bolt of lightning from heaven. That's not worship in spirit and truth. Worship in spirit and truth is exalting Christ by proclaiming his gospel so that the lost are gathered in and his church is built up. That's worship in spirit and truth. It means that you put the triune God at the center of everything that you do in that act of worship. 
Friends, as an aside, this is why we read the Bible out loud every Sunday in our worship service, because we want to worship in spirit and truth. This is why we emphasize the gospel each and every Lord's Day, because that's worship in spirit and truth. It's nothing less than exalting Christ by the Spirit, through the Scriptures, all to the glory of God. The woman asks which mountain she should worship on, and Jesus mercifully tells her, forget the mountain, focus on me. So there's mercy upon mercy in this whole conversation. There's one more piece of mercy. Verse 25. The woman still does not see, though she's on the right track. Notice what she says, verse 25. I notice that Messiah, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. She's not wrong. When the Messiah comes, he will lead God's people into all truth. She's not wrong. But Jesus does tell her what she's missing. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Friends, that is a strikingly direct moment of revelation. Here is Jesus, far removed from Jerusalem, far removed from the temple, far removed from the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and it's here, in Samaria of all places, with an adulterous woman of all people, that Jesus reveals the truth of his identity. There's no ambiguity in Jesus' words, is there? It's just simple, clear revelation. She says, when Messiah comes, he's going to tell us everything. Jesus says, that's me. I'm he. I'm the Messiah. This is one of the clearest statements from Jesus in the entirety of John's gospel. This is as close as he comes to saying, hey, just cut everything away. I'm the Christ. This is as close as he comes to saying it that directly. And who hears it? Not Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews. Not Peter, James, and John. A Samaritan woman with a past so checkered she'd rather come at the heat of the day and draw water than risk people whispering behind her back. That's mercy, friends. It's mercy. It's the compassion of Jesus Christ. And this is why he has come, to seek and to save the lost, including Samaritans and sinners. That's where we're going to have to leave it for this morning. We'll pick up the conclusion of the story next week, which is just as incredible. For now, as we get ready to close, we ought to marvel. We ought to marvel over how the mercy of Christ persistently pursues sinners. Jesus did not have to wade through the woman's dismissive comments. He didn't have to answer her distracting questions. He could have simply moved on to someone much more likely to become a disciple. And yet, Jesus pursues the wayward. He shows mercy to those in need. He doesn't paper over their sin. Please don't confuse mercy with permissiveness. Jesus engages the woman at the level of the heart. He draws out her need for forgiveness, so he doesn't ignore her sin. But even in that moment of exposure, the Lord Jesus is merciful. He's merciful. He's compassionate, even as he speaks the truth. You know that command 
from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 that Bill mentioned in his prayer earlier, the command that we're supposed to speak the truth in love. You know that passage? That's why we read Ephesians 4 today. I wanted to read Ephesians 4 because this is where I wanted to end. We're supposed to speak the truth in love with one another. What does that look like to speak the truth in love? It looks like Jesus in this chapter. That's what it looks like. If you're speaking the truth, friends, doesn't draw a person out with mercy and compassion, it's not speaking the truth in love. Far too often, we just throw bombs at fellow church members, and then we say, I'm just speaking the truth. I don't think that's how Jesus would do it, friends. What does it mean to speak the truth in love? It looks like what Jesus does in this chapter. He speaks the truth, but he does so with mercy. He speaks the truth, but he does so in a way that doesn't drive the person away, but draws the person in to a point to where you can't deny how deep your need is for a Savior. That's speaking the truth in love. Brothers and sisters, that's how we ought to live with one another. Prayerfully combining mercy and truth so that each one of us is growing more into Christ's likeness. And perhaps even more importantly than that, we also ought to recognize that this is how Jesus responds to us. He's merciful in dealing with us. Even when he exposes our sin, even when he brings us to conviction, what is Jesus' goal? Not condemnation, not accusation, but mercy. Mercy. Restoration. Wholeness. Confession. The way you honor Jesus' mercy is by coming to him in repentance and faith. We're going to come to the Lord's table in just a few minutes after we sing. And there's really no better response to this passage than the Lord's table. For what is the Lord's Supper? What is it? It's our confession of two things. One, that we need mercy. And two, that Christ is merciful. So we're going to sing here in just a moment, and I pray that we're going to use this time to respond and to prepare. Friends, if you are a Christian today, if you're professing faith in Christ, and there is something that you need to bring into the light, something that you need to deal with, something that you need to confess, now's the time to do it. Christ is merciful, so merciful that he welcomes the wayward to be restored. Won't you respond to him this morning? Let's pray. Father, we, we do ask that right now, in the singing of praise, in the hearing of your word, and in the uttering of prayer, that you would be merciful to us. We pray, Father, for the mercy of confession. We pray, God, that if there are things in our hearts, not the hearts of other people that we know, our hearts, if there are things in our hearts that we need to bring into the light to confess, repent, and receive forgiveness for, I pray, God, that you would work by your Spirit now to do that. I pray, Father, for anyone here who might be hesitant to respond to your mercy, thinking that confession will lead to condemnation. I pray they would see the example of Jesus in this passage and know that coming into the light is always a moment of mercy. We pray, Father, for the work of the Holy Spirit now. 
He is the Holy Spirit. And so we pray that His work today would make us more holy like You. We pray, Father, for Your mercy to have its effect in this way. Help us, God, as we sing and as we come to the table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.